If you'll take your Bible now and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 22, we're going to look at verse 30 to start off with, and then we're going to go to chapter 24 and a few verses there. I hope you have your outline handy. Uh, we will be looking uh, all the way through the outline tonight. So uh, I want to talk to you tonight about the people God uses. I hope that it's the desire of your heart that you be a person that God uses. As I look over this uh, crowd tonight, I look at in the faces of many of you that I know God is using and has used and will continue to use. And so what is it? What kind of person does God use? I'll give you a couple of people, a couple of uh, uh, descriptive terms, rather, uh, of a people that God uses. Now, he uses people with other kinds of uh, qualities as well, but in these two verses or these two passages in Ezekiel, I want us to look at uh, this from uh, God's point of view in the Scripture and uh, from the, uh, what we can learn tonight about Ezekiel being a kind of person that God could use. So let me look with you now at Ezekiel chapter 22 and verse 30. This is God speaking. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. This is a sad verse because this is a verse that that speaks about the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, who were living in Jerusalem and Judea at that time. And God has given to Ezekiel a number of messages. And just to remind you, Ezekiel is not in Jerusalem. He is in Babylon, in a a POW camp in Babylon, along with thousands of other uh, people from Jerusalem and Judea. But he's giving these messages to the people there, and those messages would be sent to the folks who actually lived in Jerusalem. But here God is saying, and this is uh, really the last message that God has for the people of Judea before they are destroyed and before the armies of uh, the Babylonians that have already encircled the city of Jerusalem by this time. Uh, This is going to be the last message before all of that destruction actually happens. And so what God is saying here is, that he was looking for someone that he could depend upon. And that is point number one. God uses dependable people. He was looking for a man that he could count on, a man who would build a wall, a man who would stand in the gap, a man who would pray, a man who would be courageous, a man who would stand before God, between God and the people, so that he would not destroy the city. But sadly, the last part of that verse says, but I found no one. Now, there were over 10,000 people who had been living in Jerusalem, probably more like 15,000. By our standards today, not a huge number of people living there. But you would think that among that number of people, there would be at least one man who would qualify. But no. Not according to what God says here to Ezekiel, that he needed someone that he could count on, someone who would be faithful, someone who would be dependable. And yet he said, I found no one. Well, there are people 
in the Bible who are dependable and who were dependable that God used. Uh, and point letter A there under point number one, I want to give you a couple of Bible examples. One was a man named Noah. We all know his story. He was living at a time when uh, uh, in Genesis chapter 6 where every imagination of people's heart was just evil all the time, the Bible says. So God determined to destroy the world by a flood. But the Bible then says in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 6, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so God gave Noah a job to do, which was to build an ark. He took 120 years to build the ark. And then after the ark was built, the animals came in and then his family came in. And those eight people were the only ones who survived that flood uh, after they got inside the ark and God shut the door. So Noah was not a perfect man, obviously, after the flood was over and the dry land appeared and they got, came back and started living on the land again. Noah made some wine and got drunk. So he wasn't a perfect man by any means, but he was a man that God depended on to fulfill a mission for him, which was to survive or to, to allow the human race to survive. And it did because of God's grace, because of Noah doing what God called him to do, which was to build an ark. Nobody had ever built an ark before, but God showed him how to do it. It took him a long time to do it. I wonder about 60 years in if Noah might have said, well, man, this is taking a long time. I wonder how much longer it's going to take. But God knew that, that Noah was dependable, and he did for him. He, he did in Noah's life what he needed to do, and Noah did what God called him to do. And then there's a man named Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, we find Isaiah uh, in the temple worshiping God after the king had died. Uh, the king who had been the king of, of Judah for 52 years, uh, Uzziah, he had died. And Isaiah is in the temple worshiping the Lord and has this wonderful, marvelous experience of seeing the Lord there in the temple, high and lifted up. And then God speaks and says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And who was it that volunteered? It was Isaiah, the, the man who was right there at the time, at the right place, at the right time. And so God saw Isaiah's volunteer uh, attitude and he called him then to do what he wanted him to do. And for the rest of his life, then Isaiah was dependable. He preached the word of God. He lived out God's word and he did what God called him to do. And therefore, God is always still looking for people that he can depend on to carry out what he wants that person to do, male or female, whoever it may be. Let me give you a modern day example. I was reading just a few days ago about a man who lives in the West African country of Niger. He is a man whose name is Mahmoud, and he was raised Muslim. He uh, was contacted by a Christian missionary some years ago who uh, shared with him the gospel of Jesus, but uh, Mahmoud did not really want to trust Christ at first because he thought it would mean he would have to say goodbye to his uh, Muslim heritage, and he was not ready to do that. But the missionary didn't give up. He continued talking to Mahmoud, and over the course of time, as he shared the gospel and as they compared the Bible with the Quran, uh, that uh, Mahmud realized that the Bible was true. 
that the Bible is the Word of God, and therefore my mood received Jesus Christ into his life as his Lord and Savior. And immediately he began to share his faith with other people. And of course, the people around him were Muslims. He lived in a Muslim community, uh, and uh, all the people around there for miles and miles were Muslim people. But Mahmoud would go out and share the gospel. He led his wife and his 11 children to faith in Christ. And as the years went by, he worked side by side with the missionary for 16 years and continued after that. He would go out on his own before that as well. He would go out into the villages and share Jesus with the people. And then as his children got older, five of them became helpers with him, and they would share the gospel too with him as they went out into these various villages in this country. And they, didn't, they don't have an accurate count of how many people have been led to Christ, but they know it is in the thousands of people who are Muslims in their background, but they have embraced and trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And what he says is that uh, the Muslim people, the Fulani people, uh, here in uh, this country of Niger, the Fulani people are very open to the gospel, but many of them uh, are afraid that they'll be persecuted if they receive Jesus. And that is, in fact, what happens many times. Sometimes a person who gets saved will be run off or chased away from their family. The family, if they are not Christians or don't want to become Christians, they don't want anything to do with this member of their family who has become a Christian. So the persecution there is very real, but they continue to share the gospel. They continue to preach. They continue to go uh, village by village and share the gospel. And that ought to give us some, a great deal of hope tonight. You know, a lot of times we think, well, there's 1.2 billion Muslims in the world, and they're going to take over the world one day just by sheer numbers. And that, in fact, is what some of them want to do. But God is working among Muslim people. We don't hear about it too much, but he is working. Do you know where the fastest growing churches are in the world today, right now? Number one is Afghanistan, and number two is Iran. And those are both Muslim countries, but God is moving powerfully in those countries. He is finding men and women who are dependable, who will share the gospel, who will take the gospel to their own people. And he is bringing great revival to these countries that we think, and they are, as far as foreign missionaries are concerned, are closed to the gospel, but they're not closed to Jesus. And so he is working in the lives of the people, and many thousands of people are coming to Christ uh, day by day and year by year in those areas. So God, what kind of people does God use? God uses dependable people. Secondly, I want you to turn with me now to chapter 24 of Ezekiel, and we're going to read starting at verse 15 down through verse 18. And this to me is one of the saddest passages in all the scripture. And uh, if you haven't read it yet, you'll see why uh, as we read it here in just a moment. Look at verse 15 of chapter 24. Also, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Yet you shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh in silence. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head and put your sandals on your feet. 
Do not cover your lips and do not eat man's bread of sorrows. So I spoke to the people in the morning and at evening my wife died. And the next morning I did as I was commanded. Here's what God said to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, your wife is going to die, but you cannot mourn for her publicly. You can't cry. You can't do what was customary in that day in order to mourn for a loved one. That is, they would take their turban off. They'd take their hat off. They would rent, they'd tear their clothes. They would uh, get into somewhere that uh, was very dusty. They would sit down in a dust pile. They would throw dust up in the air and throw it on their head. They would do all of these things to demonstrate their sorrow and their grief over the death of their loved one. And in this case, it was Ezekiel's wife. And God said to him, Ezekiel, your wife is going to die. But you cannot weep for her. Now, Ezekiel was very sad about his wife's death. But he could not show it the way that it was customary to show grief in that day. Look at what God said uh, for him to do in verse 17. Sigh in silence. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head. Put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips. And do not eat man's bread of sorrows. All those things were a part of the way that people would grieve in that day. Well, why did God require him to do that? Point number two in your outline is God uses obedient people. Look at the end of verse 18. At the evening, my wife died, and the next morning I did as I was commanded. Ezekiel did what God told him to do. Now, there was a reason for God telling Ezekiel to, to, uh, the, about what was going to happen. And it was a picture of what would happen in Jerusalem when Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, finally dies that is, it's finally taken down and destroyed. It's going to happen, though the people in Jerusalem realize that Nebuchadnezzar's armies are choking the city and that they're going to one day fall. When it finally did happen, it's, it was like it was so quick that it caught them off guard. And so they didn't have time to mourn the loss of their city because they were trying to save their own lives or hide from the Babylonians. So there was a purpose, there was a reason for God telling Ezekiel to do, uh, to do this. And he, God never told anyone else in all of Scripture not to mourn when someone dies. So this was a unique situation. This was a, a, a time and a place where God wanted to communicate to his people something very specific. God knows that when we as human beings have a loss that we need to grieve over it, that we're going to grieve, we're going to weep, and we're going to 
and need support and have people come around us and so on. All of that is a normal part of grief. This was the one exception, and it was only for the point of teaching the people in, uh, of Jerusalem and the people who were, who were captive there in Babylon that they were not going to have time to mourn. They were not going to be able to mourn the city when it died. But I admire Ezekiel because he just simply says what happened. At evening, my wife died. And the next morning, I did as I was commanded. That takes a lot of obedience in a situation like that. And God, I don't think, would ever require anyone in our day or since this time to do the same thing as Ezekiel was required to do. But God does want people to obey him. He does want us to hear him, to trust him, and to obey him. There are many examples, both in the Bible and in other places as well, of people who obeyed God rather than men. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 19, we have the Apostle Paul giving a testimony uh, in front of a court about what God called him to do and how, he, how God told him he would go and stand before kings and, and preach and witness to Gentiles and so on. And when, when uh, Paul finished that message in front of uh, Agrippa, he said to him, and I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Though it cost Paul years of his life, it cost him years of being imprisoned, yet he was not disobedient to what God called him to do. Also in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, we have Peter and the other apostles who had been called in front of the Sanhedrin to give an account of why they were preaching in the name of Jesus. And he said, well, you determine whether it's right in your eyes to do it. But he said, we ought to obey God rather than men. We may disobey you, and we will disobey you if you continue to require us not to preach in the name of Jesus. But we ought to obey God rather than men. And it's still true today, isn't it? We ought to obey God rather than men. If the word of God, if the law of the land ever conflicts with the word of God, the Bible is our source. The Bible is our standard. The Bible is our guide. The Bible is the truth. It's not just our truth. It is the truth. And because it is the truth, it is our guide for living. And therefore, if any government, local or state or federal, any government makes a law that, con that contradicts the Word of God, then we ought to do like these early apostles and say, regardless of what may happen to me, I'm going to obey God rather than men. And that day is rapidly coming in our own nation. So, there are some other people who also radically obeyed God. One was a man named William Carey. Back in the late 1700s, William Carey. Uh, got saved, and uh, he, God started dealing with him about uh, being a foreign missionary. He was from England, grew up in England, and uh, he went to a, a meeting of uh, Baptists and uh, made a proposition to them that uh, we ought to do something about all these lost people in the world. And you've probably heard the story before of some leader in that, 
in that meeting said, Son, it's time for you to sit down. When God wants to convert the heathen, he'll do it on his own terms without any help from you. Well, William Carey, he just could not get it off of his mind. And he eventually uh, went to India with his wife and children where he stayed for uh, the rest of his life. And he invested his life in India. He was a brilliant uh, man dealing with languages. He could learn a foreign language easier uh, than most people. So he began to translate the the Bible uh, from English to the uh, common language there where he was living in that part of India, Bengali. And he, he uh, translated the Bible in many languages. In fact, uh, the way that he translated the Bible way back in the late 1700s and early 1800s uh, was the standard for the Bengali language, and it still is today. And so God used this man who heard the call of God and was obedient to God's call. But let me tell you about some other folks who are obedient to God in our day. We've just had our World Missions Conference here, and you may have uh, seen, well, if you were here a few Wednesday nights ago when, uh, when Keith Moore was here and spoke to us about his work that God led him to in Charlotte, North Carolina, to work among uh, Hispanic or Spanish-speaking population in Charlotte and what God's doing there. Uh, we have sent out from Bellevue some, some uh, people uh, to start churches and to plant churches in areas in our nation that are hard. Some years ago, uh, just a few years ago, a young man named Ryan Sidham went out to a place in Washington State, Vancouver, Washington, and he is planting a church there, and the work is hard. Uh, and he was here uh, recently for our missions conference. There was another uh, young man who was not sent out from Bellevue, but we support him, named Jordan Easley. And Jordan has planted a church in Seattle, Washington. Uh, he recently was talking to a group of folks about what it's like out there, and he says, it is so hard, the people seem to be so hardened to the gospel that, they are, that, that it's like trying to plow concrete to get the word into their hearts. But he said, even though it's hard, God is blessing. He said, we were, because of COVID, we were online only for 10 months. And then when we were able to regather, God blessed, our numbers doubled when we started to regather. And since then, it has doubled again. And they have services in three languages. They are seeing God work. It is slow. It is hard. Well, why would a man do something like that to go out there where it's so hard to do it? One reason, because he is obedient to what God has called him to do. And God may not call any one of us in this room tonight to be a church planter, but he is calling every one of us in this room tonight to obey him in whatever area he has called us to obey him. And for us, that is every area of our lives. Another young man that left our church here about three years ago named Chris Phillips, and he went to, a, to plant a church in Denver, Colorado. And God is blessing. They've just opened a second campus now, and God is blessing. And he went out there again for the same reason, because God called him. And he was obedient to what God called him to do. So we have people like William Carey living among us today. All of the examples that we can think about 
either in the Bible or uh, in church history years ago, aren't the only ones we ought to be thinking about. There are people now who are taking the gospel where God calls them to take the gospel. What kind of people does God use? He uses dependent people. He uses obedient people. And thirdly and finally, he uses suffering people. He uses suffering people. Look again with me at verse 17, where God said to Ezekiel, sigh in silence. He, he had to grieve in silence. He had to grieve. He had to suffer the loss of his wife in silence. God often brings or allows suffering into the life of a Christian. It is not by accident. It is by design. God uses people who have or who are suffering. God wants his people to live a life of dependence upon him. And God knows that we don't depend upon the Lord, most of us, maybe 100% of us. We don't depend upon the Lord until we have to. We don't depend upon him like we should until we have to. And so what is one of the things that God does for us to help us depend upon him? He brings or allows suffering in our lives. The Bible is full of examples of people whom God used who suffered. Probably the first one that may come to your mind, as it did to me, was Job. Job suffered tremendously, and yet God used him tremendously after his suffering. As I was studying for this message, I came across uh, something that I wanted to share with you. So it's in your outline there. Uh, the Bible gives us at least seven reasons for suffering. Now, there may be more than this, but I found this in one of the resources that I was using to prepare this message tonight, and so I want to give these to you. There's a Dr. Cooper who wrote a book, commentary on Ezekiel, and these are from that commentary, but they're so good, I want to give them to you. Why does God bring suffering into the life of a Christian? Number one is to test your faith, to test your faith. First Peter Chapter 1 and verse 7 says this, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God brings suffering into our lives in order to test our faith. Our faith must be tested in order to demonstrate that it's real. Any faith that's genuine must be tested, and when it is tested, it will come forth as real. So, God allows or brings suffering to test our faith. Number two, to strengthen your faith. To strengthen your faith. Romans chapter 4, verses 19 and 20 speaks of Abraham in the time after God spoke to him 
that uh, his wife Sarah would give birth to a son and that he would be the father and not being weak in faith. He did not consider his own body, already dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Here's Abraham. We often call him the father of faith. But here's a man whose faith was tested and strengthened. You know the story. God told Abraham that he would have as many descendants if he could count them as the stars in the sky. And the Bible says God revealed that to Abraham, and Abraham believed God, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Well, some time passed, and nothing happened. And so uh, Sarah, his wife, gave Hagar to Abraham as his as his second wife, as her handmaid, and he had a son through her, but that was not the one that God intended. He intended Sarah to be the mother. So Sarah gave birth to the son who was the son of promise, whose name was Isaac. And during this time, the Bible says that Abraham, when he knew for sure that it was Sarah who was going to be the mother of the baby, He did not, he was not weak in faith. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. So God allows you to suffer to strengthen your faith. Point number three, he also allows us to suffer to discipline and teach you. To discipline you and to teach you. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse seven, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? That entire passage is about what God does to his children. And he does it because he loves us and for our own good. He disciplines us and he wants us to learn through that discipline process. Every parent, every father needs to discipline their children. And they do. If they're doing what they ought to do, God, as our Heavenly Father, disciplines us for our good that we might learn to obey Him. Point number four, we also suffer. God also brings suffering into your life to humble you. To humble you. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 23, Moses is giving one of his last sermons to the children of Israel. They've been in the a wilderness for 40 years, and after he dies, they'll go into the promised land. But here's what he says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So here, God is is teaching his people. One of the reasons that God sent them on this wilderness journey was to humble them. 
That is, they had to learn that they were not sufficient of themselves to provide what they needed. They had to look to God. They had to go out every day, six days out of seven, and pick up manna in the wilderness. They did not uh, earn their keep. They didn't have jobs that somebody would pay them. They had to go out every day and depend upon the Lord to provide the manna for them. They got sick and tired of the manna. You know those stories. But still, God provided when they needed water. God provided water. And so he let them and led them through that wilderness journey to humble them, to help them realize that the only hope they have in this life is trusting in God. And that's still true today, isn't it? And then, also, God tests us in order to purify us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, we've already looked at it, but here it is again, that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When our faith is tested by fire, all the stuff that we don't need kind of gets burned up. And the only thing that comes out is that which is precious and that is lasting. And so our faith is purified by trial. And then, number six, to help other sufferers. To help other sufferers. Second Corinthians chapter 12 and verse uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So when we have tribulation, when we have suffering, God comforts us, and he does that for our good, but also for the good of others, so that when others are suffering, when they're going through tribulation, we can identify with them and comfort them with the same comfort that God comforts us with. Therefore, he, he gives us opportunities to trust him so that we can use that to be a blessing to other people. And then finally, number seven, to demonstrate God's grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. My grace is sufficient for you, God said to the Apostle Paul, to demonstrate God's grace. That is, his grace is sufficient and more than sufficient for whatever need you and I have. So what kind of people does God use? People who are dependable, people who are obedient, and people who are suffering. God does not waste anything in your life, including your suffering. And therefore, if you want God to use you, then look 
for these traits in your own life. And if these are not part of your life, determine starting tonight that you are going to be the kind of person who is dependable and you're going to be obedient and you're going to use the suffering that comes into your life as a way to be a blessing to other people and to give glory to our great God.